It's very unusual that a church would invite me to come back and stand behind a pulpit two weeks in a row. It's normally my job to make you happy that your pastor gets to come back next week and that you're happy to see him. So uh, that's my job today to make you happy when uh, your pastor's back here next week. Of course, you can see on the screen, that's what we're going to talk about, being happy. But thank you for allowing me to share God's word with you again this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but this past year has been not one of the happiest years of my life. When COVID-19 hit, things started going crazy. We were told that we needed to slow the spread. And that didn't work, so then halfway through March, we went down in the lockdown mode, and we were told to stay home, and then we were told to work from home, and we're still in lockdown mode or home mode. And on top of that, each state governor has kept changing his mind about whether we could meet inside or outside, if we had to wear a mask, how many can there be at one time, how close can we be to one another, are we allowed to shake hands or just wave. I was so despondent, I actually preached a sermon back in June that was entitled, uh, Change Your Attitude, Be Happy. And it was, came from Philippians chapter 2, 14, and, and I did so first because I was signed to do that passage, but second because I needed it. And I still do, I think. But that's easier said than done because we tend to uh, complain and whine when things aren't going well rather than be happy. But being happy is biblical. Let me give you some proof text for that if you... Uh, see on the screen, Psalm 126, verse 3, it says that the Lord has done great things for us, and so we are glad. And I think we can all concur that the Lord has blessed us immeasurably, most of us more than we deserve. Psalm 118, 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Something, if we would say that every morning, it would perhaps change our perspective on the day. Instead of saying, oh no, another day. Psalm 70, verse 4, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And that's what we're here to do this morning, uh, seek God's face. So let's be glad about it. And you'll be really happy when we're done, but at least hang in there until we get there. Psalm 32, 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy, you upright in heart. And it's because of God's grace that we're alive, and we have a sovereign God who cares for each one of us as long as we trust him and live for him. Psalm 30, verse 9, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silenced. Turn my mourning into dancing which is really hard for us recovering legalists to try and understand. Uh, but uh, when we see things from God's perspective, all things work together for his good and for his glory. It changes the way that we view uh, calamities uh, that come into our lives. And then here's one from the Proverbs, a couple of them from the Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So saying an encouraging word to someone helps brighten up their day and even makes you feel good. And then Proverbs 15, 13, a glad heart makes a cheerful face. It's been said that it takes more face muscles to frown than to smile. And unless you're wearing a mask, people can see the condition of your heart often by just looking at your face. And now we just have to look at your eyes and hope that that uh, uh, shows gladness there. So maybe it's time for us to stop thinking about how miserable we are 
uh, right now and remember what God has really done for us. Because when we turn our attention to God and we stop complaining about our condition, it'll help us rise above our circumstances and comfort us in the truth that it portrays. We serve a God who is involved in our lives and wants us to both know him and to love him because of that involvement. So I want to draw your attention this morning to Psalm 130 for our consideration. Psalm 130 is one of those reflective psalms. It was written by one who took the time to think about God and realize why we should be happy. And that's the title of this morning's message. Psalm 130 is one of the four psalms that Martin Luther called the Pauline Psalms. He did so because it sounds very much like the writings of Paul, who had experienced a radical transformation in his life, turning from sin to Christ. And yet he recognized the struggles that he had overcoming daily sin in his Christian life. Paul writes about that in Romans 7 and 8. So let me read it to you, Psalm 130. I'm going to do it from your pew Bible, the New American Standard. It's found on page 450, if you're looking for it. Psalmist writes, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So why should we be happy? Well, I think there's four reasons that the psalmist gives us to warrant our happiness. And the first is, it's already been mentioned this morning by others, and that is that God hears us when we pray. Notice verse 1. Out of the depths I have cried to you, Lord. Now when you read a verse such as this, you cannot help but be reminded of those people in the Bible who were mired in deep trouble or sorrow, and they cried out to God, such as Joseph when he was in the pit before he was sold into Egypt or Samson at the temple of Dagon, or David running from Saul, or Daniel in the lion's den, or the three Jewish men thrown into a fiery furnace, or Jonah in the belly of the fish, or Peter who was sinking in the Sea of Galilee, and there's many others. Unfortunately, it seems that we're pretty well thick-headed enough not to realize when we start to sink. Uh, but somewhere on the way down, we call out to God. Uh, perhaps we're so involved in our life, they're so busy that we miss the connection of our condition with our relationship with God. Perhaps we've lost that close communication with God so it doesn't even hit our brain at the beginning of a slide into sin or into a dive into despair. When, however, we notice that we are in the depths of despair, only then do we remember that God loves us and he cares for us and, and he wants us to cry out to him. As we look back at the biblical characters who did cry out to God and how he responded to them, why shouldn't we do the same? Augustine, the church father, wrote, But when one cries from the deep, he rises from the deep, and his very cry suffers him not to be long at the bottom. Have you ever been in the depths of despair? 
Have circumstances ever seemed to overwhelm you that you felt that you had to look up just to see the bottom? Well, sometimes God takes us there because he can't seem to get our attention any other way. So what do you do when you're in that condition? Well, the psalmist says, verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Now, the last word of the preceding verse is the proper name for God. It is the word Jehovah or Yahweh. It's mostly seen in your Bible as in all capital letters. Now, in using that name, the psalmist cries out to the God of the universe whose omnipotence and omniscience are sought. He's the God, Jehovah. But the first word of this verse is the common word for Lord. It's the word Adonai. It's a word that is used by a servant to his master. And it recognizes that the Lord, the master, has both a relationship and an interest in the well-being of a servant. And that's who we are, servants of the Most High. A God who actually cares for each one of us. Now, this is not to be sung or to be spoken by those who are not personally related to the master of the universe. This psalm is no comfort for those who are outside of the faith, except to show the benefits of a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Others can cry out, but the master only knows the voices of those who belong to him. And God will hear our prayers and our voices when we come to him on the basis of his conditions. Or as Psalm 24 verse 4 says, you come to God with clean hands and a pure heart. Now, it's interesting to note in this phrase, O Lord, hear my voice, that the creature, which is us, is commanding the creator, almighty God, to do something, and that is to hear. Is it right for us to expect almighty God to hear us when we pray? Well, of course it is. The psalmist noted that we are his children. We are the sheep of his pasture. He's not only offered his ear, he's requested that we come before him, and he's promised that he will hear and he will answer our prayers according to his perfect will and in his perfect timing. You need proof? How about Psalm 91.15, where God said to those who trust on him, who, who come before him, he said, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. How about Isaiah 65, verse 24, where God said that before they call, I will answer. And while they're yet speaking, I will hear. Or how about that favorite verse of many, Jeremiah 33, 3, where God said, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and hidden things that you have not known. God wants us to call upon him. And he promised us that he will hear our prayers always. Not to know by you. But I'm pretty happy about that. You? What's also interesting is the psalmist didn't request that God should or would get him out of the situation that he was in. Uh, too often we think that we know what is best for each one of our lives. But as Charles Spurgeon wrote, he said, If the Lord were able to make an absolute promise to answer all our requests, it might be rather a curse than a blessing. For it would be casting the responsibility of our lives upon ourselves. And we should be placed in a very anxious position. But now the Lord hears our desires, and that's enough. We only wish him to grant them if his infinite wisdom sees that it would be for our good and for his glory. It is therefore appropriate 
and responsible to say, Lord, hear my voice. We can and we should cry out to God. So why should we be happy? Because God hears our prayers. But secondly, God forgives our sins. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, once again, the first Lord in this verse is Jehovah, Yahweh, the personal name of God. But the second one is Master. And the psalmist is not being redundant by the double use of the word Lord as it appears in the English text and as we speak it. But he's changing the emphasis from the supreme being to the one who's involved in your life and in mine. Now, the psalmist is aware that we do sin. And every sin is an affront to a righteous and a holy God. You know, it baffles me that many people think that God is going to someday look at all the good and the bad things that we've done here on earth. He's going to put them on a scale. And whatever the balance is will determine their eternal existence. That's a pretty scary thought to have to go to heaven and wonder whether or not you're going to make it based on all the good or bad things that you've done. How would you know if your good outweighs the bad? How would it even be possible to do enough good works to equal every time you sinned, either actively or passively? Could anyone be good enough? No, no one can be good enough. One theologian wrote, if Jehovah, the all-seeing, should in strict justice call every man to account for every want of conformity to righteousness, where would any of us be? If men were to be judged upon no system but that of works, who among us could answer for himself at the Lord's bar and hope to stand clear and accepted? Well, the answer is no one. We're just not that good. You may look good, but you're not that good. And as to the phrase mark iniquities, this exact expression is only used three times in the Old Testament, but the individual words are used hundreds of times. To mark literally means to seek, to keep, to remember, to collect. What if God kept a record of every sin that you've committed? How large of a filing cabinet would he have to have in order to keep them all recorded? Who could stand before him and claim that he is worthy to stand? Certainly none of us. Ezra the prophet Noted as he spoke about his nation of Israel in Ezra 9.15, he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So what if God remembered every sin? What if God held up ledger cards to determine our worthiness? What if every time uh, God thought of you, he had a scorecard of your sins, a living grade in front of you, him? Would you want to stand before him at all? Probably not. So that's our condition. We're guilty. Sinners in the hands of what ought to be an angry God. But wait. The psalmist gives us a promise that we need to keep. And this promise should make us happy. Notice verse 4. But he says, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now the conjunction but at the beginning of this verse literally means because or for. And it gives the reason for the truth implied in verse 3. Forgiveness. That's a pretty good word, isn't it? How many of us need forgiveness? Don't raise your hands. Yet the word forgiveness is only used three times in the Old Testament. 
It's used here, and it's used in Nehemiah 9.17. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn back there with me to Nehemiah 9, because in this particular passage, Nehemiah recognized the sinfulness of the Israelites and why God punished them, yet he did not forsake them. God didn't totally destroy them and start all over with somebody else, like we probably would have done. But after describing the sinfulness of the Israelites and desiring to go back to Egypt, in Nehemiah 9, verse 17, Nehemiah remembered. He said, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Isn't that a great verse? Our God is a God of forgiveness. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and kindness. That makes me happy. The only other place where this exact word is used, forgiveness, is used in Daniel 9.9, where Daniel says, uh, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. And that's the only three times that the word forgiveness is used in the Old Testament. But the concept of forgiveness is used and found throughout the Bible. In Psalm 86.5, David writes, he says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. The words forgive and forgiven are used over a hundred times in the Old Testament alone. We won't look at all of them this morning. You can do that on your own time. Back in Psalm 130, verse 4, the text says, There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now, God forgives in order that men may fear him. But this fear is not the same as being afraid of God. But that is exactly the way most Muslims uh, view God in their pursuit of following what they think is the will of Allah. Allah is portrayed as a stern and an unforgiving God. And his followers fear him and dread him, accepting whatever happens to them as being part of the wrathful will of Allah. They fear him as a God who punishes all evil, and their fear is one of dreading him. They don't know about our loving God. And when they learn about him, they often turn to him. Now, a person might dread a stern, unforgiving God, but he could not fear him with reverence and respect as a God who, in love, can and will forgive sins. Think about it. The fear with which we fear God is out of all. It's out of reverence. It's out of respect. It's out of love for what God could do versus what God does do. God, holy, righteous, he loves us so much that he forgives the sins which we commit against him and he removes the remembrance of that sin from our record so he sees his children as standing righteous before his throne. And he does that because of what he accomplished in Jesus Christ at the cross. The Bible tells us both in Psalm 103 and Hebrews 8 that when God forgives our sins, he remembers them no more. It's not that he forgets them now, but he's going to bring them up at a later date, if need be. That's what we're like. Uh, We may forgive someone for having done something that hurt us, but we tend never to forget it because sometimes it left a scar. But God chooses to forgive and forget. He remembers our sins no more. They are gone. What a precious truth. 
that alone ought to make you happy. Forgiveness and fear go hand in hand. When one grasps a hold of the truth of what God has done through forgiveness, fear and awe of God has to be the result. Someone said, the hammer of the law may break the icy heart of man with tears and horrors, and yet it remains ice, unchanged. But when the fire of love kindly thaws the ice, it is changed and dissolved into water. It's no longer ice, but of another nature. Has your fear of God changed from one of being afraid to one of awe and respect? Well, it only happens when Christ enters your heart and you experience the forgiveness of sins that only the love of God can bring. God forgives us so that we can and will love him and desire him and follow hard after him and give him the glory that he deserves. So why should we be happy? Well, God hears us when we pray. God forgives our sins. And thirdly, he gives us his word. Look at verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. Now, the concept of waiting upon the Lord is not one that's lost in the Old Testament. Certainly, you remember Isaiah 40, verse 31, that says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting is a lost art in our society. We hate to wait. Waiting makes us crazy. We have too much to do, too many places to go, too many things to accomplish. Waiting is seen as an unwelcome intrusion into our busy lives. And every time that you go into a place that has a waiting room, you know that is what you are going to have to do. Wait. And waiting we do, and waiting we must. But waiting for the Lord to answer our prayers is the only way it seems he can get our attention in the busyness of our lives. Twenty-four times in the Psalms we're told to wait on the Lord. Do you wait on the Lord? Or do you want an answer now? It took 1,500 years for the Bible to be completed. It took all your life to get you to where you are today. Have you learned to wait? Jeremiah the prophet wrote in Lamentations 3.25, he says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. Now verse 5 continues, it says, And in his word do I hope. Now had I never read the New Testament, my understanding of the concept of this phrase would go to the law of Moses and the rest of the Bible that comprises what we call the Old Testament. Surely the psalmist speaks about his delight in the law, in the word of God, which he's given to us. Moses reminds us that of the words that were being penned as being the very words of God that he wanted us to have and to know. And he told us to keep those very words on the tip of our tongues and to meditate on his word day and night. Joshua speaks of the same things. Uh, as he could speak of the authoritative word of God, which was the first five books of the Bible, as uh, being the word of God, the law. And the book of Psalms begins with a statement about a person who follows the law, the word of God. For in Psalm 1-2 we read, but his delight is in the law, the word of God. And in this word, he meditates day and night. Now certainly the writer of Psalm 130 
had in mind both the word of God, which he drew his strength, and which gave him his hope. But I know about another word, a word that was in the beginning, a word that was with God, a word that was God. And this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Apostle Paul said, we beheld his glory, uh, that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we know this word as Jesus. And God's word speaks of the word, and together we have hope. For from the beginning of God's word comes the promise of one who would redeem sinners from the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of light. Jesus, very God of very God, did all that for those who placed their faith in him. God accepted that sacrifice and provides salvation for all who believe. And all of God's word, both the Old and the New Testament, looks to the cross as the focus of God's plan for the ages. And so the psalmist writes, and in his word do I hope. So why should we be happy? Well, God hears our prayers. God forgives our sins. God gives us his word. And lastly, God gives us hope. Verse 5 says, ends by saying, in his word do I hope. And here the prophet, uh, the psalmist recognizes that God gives us a hope. All that God has done in the past, all that God is doing in the present, gives us the definite assurance that God will fulfill all that he promised in the future. And that's our hope. And because of that hope and the anticipation of it, the psalmist writes in verse 6, he says, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Now, the Hebrew text literally says, my soul, and then there's no verb. So you have to add a verb. So you either add hope or wait. For the Lord, more than the watchers for the morning, watching for the morning. That's a literal translation. Now, the repetition of watchman for the morning gives us a sense of seriousness. And most commentators suppose that the psalmist had in mind a military sentinel who was there as a watchman as under the cover of night the enemy might have tried to sneak in towards the city and the coming light of daylight would expose their positions. But Jewish commentators of the Old Testament uh, find differently. For what they see is they understand this to read, my soul waits for the Jehovah more than the keepers of the morning watch which they keep in order to offer the morning sacrifice. And so the Jewish writers understood the reference uh, to the custom that one of the Lev Levites who kept the night watch in the temple was appointed to watch for the moment of the dawn at which the daily sacrifice was to be offered. And so that explanation sort of changes the comparison, I think, because the Levites were watching with eager anticipation for a dawn which would bring a positive blessing the renewed assurance of God's mercy, giving them another day to serve him. The night of, all, of July 31, 1830, the British colonies had freed the slaves of the West Indies. The freedom was to begin on, that, on the first day of August at the crack of dawn. We're told that on that night, many of the inhabitants of the West Indies never went to bed at all. Tens of thousands gathered in their places of worship. They were engaging in worship and singing praises to God waiting for the first streak of the light of the morning that on that day in which they would be made free. Some of them were sent up to the hills so they would know when the first light hit the skies and they would no longer be considered property but men with souls, no longer someone's slave 
but free people able to come and go as they wished. They eagerly awaited for the dawn to flee them from their darkness. You ever waited for the morning to appear because you knew something great was going to happen that day? You remember as being a child, the excitement that Christmas morning brought? How you went to bed on Christmas Eve knowing that the long-awaited Christmas day was going to be got to begin? Remember the excitement, the, intensive, the sense of anticipation on your wedding day? Uh, or the day that you were going to leave on a long-awaited vacation? Do you awaken every day with that sense of excitement that here is another day that I can serve God? Probably not. But can you picture what you might be like if you woke up in the morning looking forward to what God was going to do that day? Do we wait on the Lord with a sense of expectation that we look for his presence and the promises of his answer to his prayers? Well, in verse 7, the psalmist concludes his thoughts. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. Now, the word for loving kindness is translated in the King James as mercy. New International is unfailing love. All those words work. Only with Jehovah can there be mercy, steadfast, and unfailing love. And the psalmist does say that this mercy is given to those who wait upon the Lord and those who hope in the Lord. Both our waiting and our hoping are directed towards God. The psalmist must have realized that there was no salvation in the law or the sacrifices. If he thought that there would have been, he would have instructed his listeners to do more sacrifices. Sacrifices were good things back in the old days. Uh, but they never provided salvation. They were not the means to redemption. They prefigured redemption. They didn't provide it. Salvation is of the Lord. And with him there is mercy. And with him there is literally plentiful redemption. There is grace that is greater than all our sin. God's grace is sufficient. But not all have become partakers. Not all will experience God's forgiveness. Not all will come to Christ and ask that his sacrifice on the cross will become their portion. Not all will come because there are none righteous, no, not one. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the word all means all. And yet our Lord stands with open arms to welcome all to come to him. And he has sufficient grace to forgive sins and to cleanse each one from their iniquities. But not all have come. So not all receive his forgiveness. Question for you is, have you? Have you come to Jesus? Have you asked him to forgive your sins? Are you one of his children but have fallen back into the ways of the world and need to be restored into his fellowship? Well, if so, he stands with open arms. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now we use that verse to speak to those who are considering coming to Christ for the first time. But it was written for Christians who have forgotten God's steadfast love and his plentiful redemption and they need to return to fellowship with him and be thankful to him for all that he has done. And if that's your case this morning, then why not come back to him now? Well, the psalm ends with his promise. Verse 8, Then he himself will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And I want you to note that the psalmist wrote this in the future tense. For the psalmist, salvation was yet to come. For us, however, salvation is completed. 
Jesus has come. He has paid the price. Our redemption is secure. It's only, us, only up for us to receive the free gift offered to us. All who come to Christ will be saved. None will ever be turned away. And that should make you happen. And Pastor Justin mentioned that on the screen this morning. That we can have that salvation and that assurance. Jesus said, Blessed or happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. And then Jesus said, blessed or happy are those who hear the word of God and keep it. But Jesus didn't just tell us to do it and exempt himself. He practiced it. As the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote, in Hebrews chapter 12, he said, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So why should we be happy? God hears our prayers. God forgives our sins. God gives us his word. And God gives us hope. So the psalmist has given us several reasons that of what things that God has done for us. And because of that, we should be happy. Now, the Israelites used to remind themselves of these things as they were going up to the temple. That's called the Song of Ascents. Uh, they were going up there to worship God. Uh, they happily sang it. And they reflected upon them. They remembered them. They were encouraged by them. Yet in all these things, the emphasis was not on what they would get out of it, but what God wanted from them. God wants to be feared. He wants to be awed. He wants to be respected. He wants to be loved. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be obeyed. It's really not all about us. It's all about him. We all experience situations in our lives where the only way to look is up. Because if we look around at what we see, we become despondent and mired in despondency and despair. Without a doubt, it'll be our fault in that we've placed our faith on things and our hopes on things that are temporal and not eternal. It'll be our fault for building our foundation in the sand and not on solid ground. It'll be our fault in that we've not feared God, but disobeyed him and fallen into sin. It'll be our fault and we are to blame. But with God, there is hope. With God, there's mercy. With God, there's forgiveness. And it's available to all who come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus, come back to Jesus. And my friends, let us get our minds off the dismal circumstances that are around us and be happy because of all that God has done for us, blessing us with another day here on planet Earth and grateful for what God has promised to all of his children, which is an abundant, happy life, both now and for eternity. Therefore, we must be happy. I rest my case. Pray with me, would you? Father, we do appreciate the fact that you hear our prayers. You hear our prayers because you asked us to pray. And so we give to you our heart's desires, our fears, our discontents, the things that bother us, and you take them. And because of that, we can be happy. We're thankful also that you've given us your word, that you've given us a hope, that you forgive us our sins. May we live our lives in light of all that we know. May we be happy campers, no matter what comes our way, because of all that you've done for us. And we are grateful both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.